We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. Junichiro Tanazaki began his literary career in 1909, and it's with this piece right here in 1910 that helped him to explode onto the literary scene. She said, the tattooer. And I can see why. This is a haunting story that I think is deeply steeped in a lot of Japanese mentalities, lores, that I will talk about the parts that I could see. And I want to maybe kind of discuss with you today of where does art and sacrifice play a role, as well as our interior and exterior selves, and how we create or hide certain parts of them when we present ourselves to society. So moving through the story, right, it opens up where we're learning about geisha, kabuki theater, you know, tea ceremonies, and talks about the pleasure district, right? The pleasure districts, if you didn't know, doesn't just mean brothels, right? It was a governmental sanctioned area that did have brothels. I don't want to deny that, but it also had these theaters, these plays. It was a place where, when you look at the rigid class system of Japan, that um, in the Edo period, when they were particularly established, and this is one of the older districts in all of Japan, that they were used to entertain, where rich merchants and wealthy individuals higher up on the scheme could take people, friends, entertainment themselves, and um, relax. And maybe to the point of interior versus exterior, maybe they released a little bit of themselves that was hidden away and was considered a safe environment for that. And this is a story that just really reflects that, right? It opens up talking about the palanquin and how they just didn't want anyone driving around. They want tattooed people, right? Because then it's beautiful and you can admire it. So here you have wealthy people that are deciding not only that they're taking a palanquin, being carted around, if you haven't seen them, it's just those you know one-person things that are carted around manually by people, but they want to look at something beautiful as they do that. And I think that makes us ask the question of, what is the point of tattoos, right? When we talk about interior and exteriority, tattoos are something that are a lot of times used to express individuality. And sometimes it's even cultural or procedural of what you're doing, like in terms of Yakuza and the tattoos that they'd get. There's a certain element of people choosing to get tattoos to represent something about them, whether it's passion, something that they believe in, ideals, family. It's this way of externalizing sometimes the interior to a person. And in this district, there's a particularly skilled tattooer named Sekiji. And he is so good that he gets to choose who he tattoos and the prices that he's going to choose. But, you know, at this part in the narrative, you'll notice there's a lot of male focus. That it's when he's tattooing men, he's not doing it for the art, the output, or at least the art isn't defined as the output of the tattoo. He's doing it because he likes to inflict pain upon others, right? The art to him is the pain, and he almost becomes irritated when he's not inflicting pain upon others. This should sound very familiar to other fans of, of um, uh, Ryunosuke Akutagawa. He came out with a hell screen eight years later in 1918, I want to say, that, that dealt with a lot of these themes too, of, of art and sacrifice and how far does one go. But Seikiji is also doing the sacrifice, but it's the pain that he's looking for that he inflicts upon men. 
And we learn that he's got kind of like the secret desire. He's got this vision that he wants to do a tattoo on the perfect female specimen, right? So we're kind of bringing in male-female even a little bit here, where he wouldn't just choose you know, just a pretty body or a pretty face. There's got to be a certain je ne sais quoi about this woman that he would choose to tattoo his ultimate magnum opus tattoo upon, right? And now we start to switch from the process inflicting pain upon someone being the goal to the actual tattoo itself, the output, right? And where does that start and stop for Seikiji or even art in general? So he's been searching for four years. And then Fukugawa, one of, I think actually the oldest geisha district in, in Japan, if not Tokyo specifically, he finally finds his perfect specimen. He just sees her by the foot, almost kind of like the Cinderella type story where he's, he's got the, the foot that's going to match his perfect woman, his perfect canvas for his art. And he tries to follow her, but kind of loses her in the crowd and years go by until one day she suddenly shows up in his shop, right? He recognizes her. He feels her aura. He knows that she's special. And upon finally identifying her, he's like, oh, I've got a special project that, that, that you're perfect for, right? And she's shy. She's reserved, right? But all we see is her external, right? She seems meek. And I think this is very true for Japan. There are very rigid expectations of how you behave socially, both as men, as women, uh, in society, in certain groups. And they're, compared to, particularly in the West, particularly in America, they're much more rigid on how and when they can perform those things, right? It puts a lot of pressure on them. And you see her performing her role of being more meek, of, again, who is she serving? She's going there on an errand upon someone else. Like, like her, her subservient status is kind of like a through-and-through through veneer at this point in time. And it's worth pointing out, too, that he was looking at the Moto Lilies, which are representative of, you know, good fortune, long life, that sort of thing. And here comes his good fortune for his canvas to come in at that perfect time, his ideal canvas. And Tanizaki paints these scenes perfectly in terms of the colors and the descriptions of the vermilion and such. And he leads her up to see these scrolls, two scrolls. He shows her the first one is this Chinese uh, princess that's looking down on a man about to be tortured. <laughs> He's tied to this copper pillar that's about to be set on fire, right? What does that mean? Well, the princess starts looking at this painting and slowly her, her countenance, her look, it starts to look like the princess in the painting. And she says, I hate to admit it, but that's me, right? Like I am that person that is gaining pleasure, that has some type of sadistic pleasure that gets out of hurting others, right? And this is very shocking coming from this meek little girl that was initially presented, showing again that interiority versus exteriority conversation. And when it comes to kind of like that power thing, right? She came out initially meek, subservient to other people's errands even. Well, traditionally, it's the men that have the power in particularly Japan society at this point in time, right? And even the way that uh, Seikiji got pleasure out of almost lording and torturing other people, the pain of the tattoo is almost representative of power in this painting too, where the princess is finally the person who has power, who's, who's seeing someone else be tortured and enjoys it. And that's traditionally been Seikiji's role, right? So he shows her then the second painting, their second scroll, I should say. And it shows this woman standing on these pile of corpses, my translation said. It says she was under a cherry tree. And I'd be curious for anyone out there that, is, that does speak Japanese fluently, I didn't look it up. I would be curious if it really is that or if it's cherry blossoms. Cherry blossoms are a very uh, traditional Japanese tree and means a lot more in terms of the sakura that bloom at that point in time. It's kind of like 
spring rebirth is when they come out and you'll notice that I think it was, was it springtime when this happened? But either way, it's the woman's rebirth. So I wonder if cherry blossoms should have been a more appropriate translation. Again, let me know if you've you read that in the actual Japanese uh, language. But regardless, this woman admits that this is her, right? Standing on top of, of these this mountain of death. And she's embarrassed to admit it. Why? Why would you be embarrassed to be your true self would be a question I think that the... Uh, you know, the, the flaw of modernity, of, of uh, presentism would, would present. And I think we got to go back to that idea of, of interiority and exteriority. Like it's, it's generally frowned upon to harm others, particularly in Shintoism, like a, a very old Japanese way of life, that, uh, that, that wouldn't be a good thing to admit, even in Buddhism that, that is popular and, and grew and blew up really in Japan. But it's all interior. It's things that she's kept deep down inside, finally being surfaced exterior, Right to, to that point of tattoos and representing yourself and finally having um, no dissonance, I guess, between your internal and external self. And this is where the story just gets wild, right? It's, it's absurd because traditionally, Seikiji, the man of power, takes what he wants. And he pulls out like this little vial of, of, of something to knock her out. And while she's knocked out, he starts going to town. He starts tattooing his perfect tattoo on the perfect canvas right? Again, taking what he wants. He's a man. He's in power even from the subservient weak woman. And this is where we see this absurdist flop almost of everything of the interior and exterior of the man and the woman of power and weakness where when he's done, you know, and he works through the night to, to do this tattoo, which is ultimately this uh, black widow spider on her back, you know, black widow spiders being something that prey upon others. And there's this flip, right, where she's got to go into the water. When we talk about Shintoism, it's true in America too, but water is a much bigger deal there in terms of purity, in terms of before they enter temples and how they wash away because high level Japan kind of views evil as something that gets attached to you and you have to kind of cleanse away. So water is a big part of that that pureness, that, that rebirth. And even there's processes in Japan where at the beginning of the year you, you dip your whole body in water and white, it's that sort of thing. So she goes into this water to be reborn, right? Which isn't unheard of as a symbol in America either. And when she comes out, this is this is what's so crazy about this flip, is that when when Seikiji reaches his hand out, she's like, no, no, I, I don't need your help. And you start to see him start to play the submissive role. You see him start to become meek. You see her start to become more powerful. And even... Um, kind of showing her interiority more at this point in time. And that's what's so interesting about this story is that this man's final art, his perfect form that he thought he wanted, relinquished all of his power and he became subservient to her. There's this Jorogumo, uh, uh, I don't know how to best describe it, I'm, I'm not a master of it, but it's this spider demon, like a yokai, right? like a demon, where it was kind of viewed as a woman that preyed upon young men that were looking for love. And it was said that they even had the control, the, the power to control smaller spiders that could breathe fire, right? And they would burn down the homes of anyone that was suspicious or discovered these yokai. And here is the really interesting part where the woman has the spider with flames suddenly coming out of it. And I didn't know if that was a reference to the Jorogumo. But either way, her interiority is being discovered. This man finally sees her true self and finally sees what he sees as true power. Right, he sees he sees her in control, and just like the Jorogumo, 
he's burnt away. You know, his, his house is destroyed because her secret's been identified and she talks about consuming him, right? And I think that all comes down to this really interesting play in the story about where does power come from and, and what do we hide inside and exteriorize. This man was willing to die for this art form, sacrifice for it, only for this truth to be discovered. And isn't that kind of true sometimes that art can show us the truths of things that we can't just say directly? I don't know why that is. It's this weird thing that sometimes when it's said through art, it becomes more true and we resonate with it more. So this is just one of those stories that I think really articulates and shows that masterfully. I'll leave a Tanazaki playlist down below. I newly discovered to him, you're going to have to recommend if there's a particular story or work from him that you think that we should read. Please let us know in the comments down below. I'd love to discuss more of his work. My name's been Una. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. Peace.